This morning we're looking at Augustine and the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, if you are a good Roman Catholic or of Catholic heritage, you will pronounce him Augustine. If you're from Lubbock, Texas, it's Augustine. But I'm trying to outgrow my Lubbock. So I'm going to stick with Augustine because that's the way I've been taught to say it. Neither one of those pronunciations are what he would have used anyway. So we're in good, clear territory. Augustine and the fall of the Roman Empire. I'm really excited about this class because it combines history with theology, with family, with prayer, with good old basic real world life. And those are five of my favorite things. If I just could have added food, it would have been the whole treat for me. But I couldn't figure out how to put that into the lesson. When I was in law school, I'd love to tell you I studied all the time, but I did not. I found about three or four fellows who loved to play the game of risk. And we were all in the, the, on the board of barristers, which was some little thing in law school that had its own offices which enabled us to sit in that office, pretend we were studying when we were playing risk the whole time. I will confess also in the mode of Augustine's confessions that there were times we probably missed class because we were at a critical point in the game of risk. Now, I don't know if you've played risk or not. Risk is a board game. It's a game of global domination where you try to take over the world. Has anybody played risk before? many of you, then you know the preeminent rule of risk. Do not try to take and hold Europe. You can't do it. Hitler couldn't do it. Kaiser Wilhelm couldn't do it. Napoleon couldn't do it. Nobody can take and hold Europe. There are too many roads of incursion. You can come up from the south in Africa. You can come in from the east with Asia. You can come in from the north if you come down through Great Britain. It's, you, just, you just don't get to win the game of risk if you try to take and hold Europe. It just doesn't work. Now, the closest anybody's come in history are the Italians, the Romans. They took a pretty good bit of Europe And they held it for a pretty good while. But not even they were able to hold it. It's just a general rule. So we're going to talk this morning about the fall of Rome. But within the framework of that, I want to talk about humanity and just kingdoms in general. And because I'm hoping to whet your appetite a little bit for our life group Greek in the fall. And yes, I did get the email from one of you that says, You never finished your New Testament survey. And now you're not going to finish church history. And now you're starting something new. (laughs) The nice thing about being ADD is I'm allowed to change subjects on myself. (laughs) We'll do Life Group Greek in the fall into the end of the year. God willing, in January of 2016, we will pick back up our New Testament survey We'll finish it, and then we'll come back to church history. And then we'll have a few, few more months of church history to fill in. See, because it, it's, you'll get it. Think about it. Okay, so today, though, I want to whet your appetite a little bit, and we're going to do it with this kingdoms. Now, here it is. This is the letter B. 
You got it? Now, here it is in Greek. Greek, it's not called a beat, it's called a beta. But that's pretty close, isn't it? If you were just looking at the right, wouldn't you be able to tell that's the letter B? The next letter is the English letter A, which has a Greek letter, alpha. And you look at that alpha. It's not that far different, is it? So you're good so far. You can pronounce the two Greek letters, ba, like ba humbug. With, okay? Let's add another one. That's an English letter, S. Now, if S is written in Greek in the middle of a word, it looks a little different. That's the sigma. That's the S in Greek. So you're just going to have to learn that one. If the S is at the end of the word, it actually looks a whole lot like our S. It just looks like somebody was drunk when they wrote it. B-A-S, let's add an I. The Greek iota looks very much the same. They just don't put a dot on the top. All right, now we're going to add the English L. The Greek L slants a little bit. And because of that, they put a kickstand on it to hold it up. That's that's the Greek L. You with me so far? We've got basil. The Greek, or that's an English E. The Greek E, the epsilon, it's an easy one. Okay. Another I. You know what the Greek I looks like. And we're going to end this word with an A. Basileia is the way we would pronounce this. Basileia. Say it with me. Basileia. Okay, now here's the deal. You might not know what basileia means. But if you're reading the book of Matthew in the Greek, you will before you're done. Because basileia in the book of Matthew, he uses that term 56 times in that one book. Basileia is one of the core themes of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. Basileia means kingdom. Got it? Basilica comes from that. But Basileia means kingdom. Now, think back, and we can just quickly go through some different ways Matthew uses the word. And the other gospel writers have some of these as well. The synoptics include this passage. Repent. For the Basileia, the kingdom of God, to Theu, the Basileia, the kingdom of God, is near. It's at hand. It's close. You remember that passage? You remember this passage? The kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field that somebody goes and they sell everything they've got to go buy it. The kingdom of God is something very valuable. Jesus tells parables about it. The kingdom of God is something that belongs to those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted. The kingdom will be given to the persecuted church. Jesus tells his disciples it's easier for a rich or a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
What did I miss? Not to scale. Oh, you got that on there. Yeah, that is not to scale, that drawing. I wanted you to know that. That's called legal ease. See. All right. When Jesus is brought before Pilate, Pilate says to Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' response is, My kingdom is not of this world. Now, the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus, scholars differ over how big it was. Some go up as high as 100 million, almost. Probably not that high. Some go lower. But a good general consensus of most scholastic opinion is the Roman Empire consists of about 50 million people. Now, Jesus is on the cross. He claims that he's got a kingdom that's not of this world. He has been preaching the kingdom for several years. He's been telling parables and stories about the kingdom. He's been urging his followers to sell everything they've got to be part of the kingdom. He's been warning them against those things that would hinder them from the kingdom. And this so-called king of the Jews, while the Roman Empire has 50 million people, Jesus hangs on that cross with a handful, truly, of followers. Now, that's, that's, that's a stark contrast between the, the kingdom, the empire that is Rome, and this Galilean carpenter-turned-vagabond teacher, cult leader, with a handful that will stay with him while he's being executed. And Pilate has written in three languages, above the head of Jesus on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. A derogatory term. The Jews themselves were a disdained people by the Romans. Pilate held his nose as he held his job. The Jews said, don't do that. Put Change it. Say, he claims he's the king of the Jews. Pilate just says, hey, give me a break. I wrote what I wrote. He's dying. That's what you wanted. Get out of my face. And there Jesus hangs. Now, with Pentecost, we are in the season of Pentecost. With Pentecost, things began to change substantially. And in Jerusalem alone on the day of Pentecost, thousands come to faith. And these thousands are from different places around the Roman Empire that had gathered together, but dispersed, taking their faith with them. And the church begins to grow. And through the infusion of the Holy Spirit, the church grows not just numerically, but 
in its comprehension. And the church begins to realize that Jesus is not simply Jesus Christ, but he's truly not just a king. He's a king of kings. As he's called in Revelation, he's Lord of Lords. And so we see this unfold. Now, Jesus had been asked about when the kingdom was coming. Because some Jews were expecting God to establish a kingdom. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. And they wanted to know when. They're thinking about an earthly kingdom. When are we finally getting rid of these Romans? When will we cast aside their yoke of of superiority? And when will the kingdom of God reign from Jerusalem forth? And Jesus doesn't answer their when question. He answers a where question, which isn't what they ask. But he says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That's kind of unusual. But this is what we've got. Now, Paul becomes a believer. And Paul, in the book of Acts, it says he argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. It says he preached the kingdom of God. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, the kingdom of God's not a matter of talk. It's a kingdom of power. And Paul is kingdom conscious. We had some discussions at the library this weekend. There were discussions uh, over dinner last night. Lynn and I were seated next to Richard Hayes and Richard uh, uh, Hayes has written this new book, Reading Backwards from the Gospels, how the, the Gospels look at the Old Testament in a sense of, of, of divine Christ, a divine Messiah, that Jesus is not simply an anointed prophet, priest, or king, but he's divine. He's God. And the language of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John reflect that belief if you read backwards into the Old Testament. But 25 years ago, Richard had written another book on Paul's usage of the Old Testament. And Richard said to us last night at dinner that he was shocked when he got into his gospel study because he thought it would be same song, second verse as Paul, perhaps. Whereas Paul looked back at the Old Testament and saw it as church-focused. I would modify myself a little bit of what Richard said. I don't think he would take offense. And I would say that for Paul, it was kingdom-focused. Because for Paul, the church, the ecclesia, were those who had been called out into the kingdom of God. And it was the kingdom that Paul was preaching. So Paul saw in the Old Testament an understanding of the kingdom of God, which is hand in hand with the Gospels who saw in the Old Testament the king of the kingdom. And so we have this nice kingdom being set forth scripturally. And so you take the Roman Empire, which is the kingdom everyone knows. They don't use the word king for Caesar. They use the term Caesar. But he's the ruler. Make no doubt about it. It is his kingdom. It is his empire. 
It is no longer the republic. Since Julius Caesar, the first Caesar, the republic's gone. The Senate rubber stamps at best, most of the time, what the emperor says. And so you've got 50 million, but all of a sudden, this Jesus of Nazareth, word of his kingdom begins spreading. And through the efforts of Peter and and Paul and Barnabas and Philip, and church history teaches all of the apostles, the church begins to give forth and grow. And we can just read through Acts and see the church growing in all of the places where I've put churches on this map. And if you continue to read more of the New Testament, you begin to see that it looks like Paul may have gone to the West. And in church history, we begin to see the church unfolding in just the immediate decades after our Bibles. Throughout Gaul, we've studied in this class St. Irenaeus of Lyon, Lyon, France. But it used to be Lugdunum Gaul back when he was there. And, and so throughout this area, throughout Carthage, throughout the northern coast of Africa, throughout Spain, we're already into an era, and we'll cover it, God willing, when the church has reached England as well. I just don't have it on the map because we haven't covered it yet in this class. But the church has reached all of these different places and even outside the Roman Empire. A number of the Visigoths and Ulrich has taken the church. He's already translated the scripture into their goofy script. And language and taking it forth. And so the pagan nations outside of Rome. And the, the, the kingdom of God has become so important that scholars truly deliberate. Did Constantine really convert to Christianity in the early 300s? Or was it merely a political marriage made necessary because the Roman Empire was becoming so fragmented? The church was a coherent glue where everyone communed and united around a singular issue. Jesus Christ, resurrected Lord. The kingdom of God had grown tremendously even as the Roman Empire became fragile. And then into this picture on November 13th, 354 A.D., a woman named Monica... Do we have any Monicas in here? No Monicas? Does anybody know a Monica? Yes, it's still a name used today. Not by us. But we know people who go there. That name is still used today because of this Monica. She becomes a saint, Saint Monica. People don't use the name Jezebel today. How many of you know a Jezebel? I don't mean by personality, I mean by name. You know, not a lot of people name their kids Hitler. It's just not a real popular name right now. Monica is a popular name because on November 13th, 354, and I'm a little horse. I had to yell a lot at the refs last night. It did no good. 
354 A.D. In this little town in northern Africa, modern Algiers, called Thagast back then. It's Sukamu today, but Thagast. Small town, small town girl, Monica. Not from a family of note. Got a husband, good guy. Monica loves the Lord. Husband's pagan. Doesn't give God any attention. Monica's pregnant. She gives birth. She names their baby Augustine. Augustine? Smart guy. Does pretty well in school. The gas, by the way, is about where that church is on the map. Augustine does pretty well in school, but his family's not very well to do, and school is kind of expensive. At one point, he has to take a year off of school, but the townspeople recognize this is our bright boy. So they get together, and one patron in particular helps fund. And so this small town boy gets to continue in his schooling. His dad dies. Though his dad becomes a Christian on his deathbed. Through the prayers of Monica. The wife. Now Monica then is basically supposed to be sort of taken care of by her son. But she wants her son to finish his schooling. And his son wants, her son Augustine wants to continue schooling. So he just keeps going to school. Goes off to the big city of Carthage. How many of you have been to Carthage, Texas? Different Carthage. This is Carthage, North Africa. And so Augustine leaves the gas. He goes to Carthage. And then from Carthage, studying, by the way, he starts to study. Oh, thank you very much, Ken. Um, from Carthage, he starts That doesn't help at all. From Carthage, but it sure was good. From Carthage, he decides he's going to go to Rome. See, he started reading Cicero. And Cicero was this great Roman orator, lawyer, and and philosopher. And and so, so it really just jazzes Augustine's brain. He thinks this is big time stuff. Little boy, little town. It's just the whole world's been open to him. I love philosophy, he says. This is just fantastic. Which is something a lot of people say when they read philosophy and understand it. Many people read philosophy and think this is just stupid. The jury's out. Who's right and who's wrong? But. He's on the side that loves it. And so he decides he's going even further. He's going to go to Rome and study. Now, his mama, Monica, knows her son's a pagan. Augustine has zero desire for the Lord. Zero desire for scriptures. Thinks they're absurd. He thinks the scriptures themselves are idiocy. And anybody who'd read them is an idiot. 
God made man in his image. So God's got hands and feet. So Augustine thought. That's an absurd claim. So Augustine, with no regard for scripture, no regard for his mother's faith, decides he's going off to Rome to further his education. His mom, who's alone, doesn't want her son to leave. So she goes and she's physically hugging him on the docks in Carthage. Don't go. He says, Mom, don't worry. I won't leave without telling you goodbye. Now go get some rest. So she leaves her son. And he lied to her. And as soon as she's out of sight, he gets on the boat and heads to Rome. And abandons his mother. This guy may be sounding like a loser so far. He would tell you he was. A really smart, arrogant loser. So, he gets to Rome. And by the way, I put a helmet up here. A Roman centurion helmet. Because I got to tell you this line. Uh, Augustine thought in pictures really, really well. And allegories and metaphors and images. Dr. Bobby had some of your Leonism in him. He could really just think in pictures and images and metaphors. And he says when he's writing about this later, he says, you know, this idiocy of me not understanding Scripture and my arrogance because I thought Scripture was what I understood it to be instead of me seeking to understand what it is. He said, it's a bit like someone who comes across a helmet and when they try to put it on their leg and find it doesn't fit, they throw the helmet away and say, that's a useless and foolish piece of junk. When in fact, they just didn't understand that they weren't using it right. Belongs on the head, doesn't belong on the leg. So, off he goes, studying his philosophy. Now, for a while, he dabbles with the Manichees in Manichaeism. And, and, and that is a, a rival religion to Christianity at the time. And would be for the next several centuries. And it really proliferates more in the East, ultimately, than it does in the West, in part because Augustine stamps it out. But at first he buys into it. It's very dualistic. It would remind you of the Gnosticism we covered in here in some ways. It was this idea that there's a God of light who is good, and then there is a, 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 an equal evil, and the two battle each other out. And, and it was appealing at first within even some Christian circles because of the philosophical question, how can God create evil and be a good God? There must be an evil God who's making the evil. And so this was a philosophical system he dabbled in, but ultimately he he ran from it because it made no sense to him, even though he wasn't running to a Christian faith. So off he goes to Rome. Meanwhile, while he's in Rome, his mother has a dream. And she, by the way, goes to find him. Mama does not let him go. She has a dream 
that one day they're going to be united in their faith. Augustine says, that's great, Mom. I'm glad you're going to lose the shackles of this Christian faith and come join me. And she says, no, 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 no. That's not the dream, buddy. It was my dream. You're coming to the Christian faith. That's where we'll unite. Augustine is later when he writes his confessions. His confessions is um, his his spiritual autobiography of sorts. And he talks about having left his mother on that dock, having lied to her. This is what he writes. Thus, I lied to my mother, to such a mother, and slipped away from her. This deed also you, God, have forgiven me in your mercy. And you preserved me. For when I would be washed clean by that water, he was referencing baptism, then also would be dried up those rivers flowing down from my mother's eyes, by which before you, God, and in my behalf, she daily watered the ground beneath her face. What Augustine was acutely aware of is his mother, Monica, was praying for him tirelessly, repeatedly, all day, every day. Her heart would not rest while her son was an unbeliever. And so she prays for him. She, she, she continues to love him. She goes to Rome with him. From Rome, Augustine moves north to Milan. Now, by this point, the Roman Empire in the western area no longer is the seat of government in Rome. The emperor has moved it north to Milan. And so, from Milan, the Roman Empire is being ruled, and Augustine goes there to take up a teaching position, but there's this real famous orator, speaker, rhetorician in Rome. I mean, in Milan. His name is Ambrose. He's the bishop that we studied about three or four weeks ago. He's the bishop that had no qualms telling the emperor's mother, Josephine, where to get off because she was an Arian instead of a Trinitarian, if you remember that lesson. She was the one who told him he had to give up one of the churches and let them be an Arian church. And he said, no. And she said, so you'll have to give up your church then. He said, no. So she sends the soldiers and all of his church are surrounding him as he stands up for the faith. And Augustine starts going to church, not because Augustine wants to be one of those people standing up for Trinitarianism. Augustine's going to church just because that guy's a really good speaker. And I want to learn some of the tricks of the trade. I want to study him. Augustine was enamored with the man Ambrose and started hanging around him some. Never told Ambrose, hey, I'm a pagan. I don't believe this stuff. But just soaked him in. And so Ambrose continues to influence. 
And a remarkable thing happens between Ambrose's influence and Monica's influence in prayer. Here you've got this fellow Augustine in the middle. He's not doing real good. He'd gotten very sick on the verge of death in Rome. Back when he first moved out from home, he shacked up with a woman. They had a child out of wedlock. Then they part ways, though later she tries to come back into his life. I mean, he's living a sordid, wretched life. And his mom's watching the whole thing, thinking, this was my son of promise. This was the brightest bulb the gas has ever produced. We sacrificed for his education. We tried to do everything we could for our son. True, his dad was a pagan, but even his dad came to faith before he died. Lord, why don't you redeem and cause growth to the seed that's been planted? And through all of that, Augustine one day is caught aside by Romans 13, 13 through 14. Let's look in our ESV. I say that because the publisher of the ESV is Dane Ortland, right there on the third row, who's down here from Crossways. By the way, when we gave, uh, when we got ESV Bibles for everyone, those are the people, Crossways, who publish it. Yes, the study Bible, that gave us an amazing discount. Basically gave them to us for the publisher's cost. No profit at all to the publisher. Yeah. Um. Anyway, um, uh, so we look in our ESV, Romans 3, 13, and 14. If I can have the Elmo, let's see how we can get this on here. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus. Nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Now, look at that and say, that's the big conversion passage? I mean, I would expect it to be John 3.16 or Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Or maybe Romans 3.21, if you want to do it out of Romans. This? Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. God spoke to Augustine. And Augustine was in such a position of turmoil with his life. Everything Augustine valued, In terms of Ambrose, his mother, the commitment, the affection, those things that you could not avoid seeing value in were totally opposite of the way Augustine was privately living his life. And he read this and he just decided, I got to get my life right. And so on Easter of the year 387, as a 32-year-old man, 
he's baptized by Ambrose. And his life radically changes. And all of that intellect that had pursued what Paul would call the foolish wisdom of this world changed into the true wisdom of God. And Augustine quickly labeled what he had been living in as pride. He was so smart, he'd outsmarted everybody, he thought. When truth, in fact, was he was wallowing in a pigsty of his own making, stuck there by his pride and his refusal to see and acknowledge the Lord and the Lord's message. And so he humbles himself, sets aside his pride, and comes before the Lord. And God redeems all of those gifts and talents that Augustine had had that were being used for polluted ends. And God takes those and turns them into some works that have made Augustine definitely one of the five top Christian thinkers in a post-biblical age. Maybe one of the three top biblical thinkers. You, you, you find anybody who's listing the top 100 philosophers of all time, pagan, any, any kind of philosopher, Augustine's going to be on the list. And his works and his writings are profound. Now, I want to bring this back to something here. Whoops, get that out of the way. I want to bring this back to something here with the Roman Empire. Let's go back to it. The Roman Empire itself had been having a whole lot of problems during this time period. There was a massive earthquake that shook things up about 365. And we would say... Why was there an earthquake? Well, the tectonic plates were moving. Because we know that. They didn't understand the tectonic plates that the earth had around its, around the crust. And they didn't understand that these plates will shift. And they had no knowledge whatsoever about a physical reason for earthquakes, they just happened. And what humans are quick to do is fill in the gaps of human knowledge by attributing it to God, or God's plural. Because we're hardwired for cause and effect. And if we can't find the cause for the effect, we just attribute the cause to God, something we know. That, by the way, is a very dangerous thing to do. It's caused Christianity to be embarrassed many times. But paganism's been just as embarrassing. And Christianity's also responsible for understanding that it's the God who made nature and the laws of nature, so that even as those gaps are explained by nature, that doesn't remove God from the equation. But that's a whole different lesson. I don't need to devolve into it. Here's the point. The earthquake is so massive that a lot of the population start thinking, judgment of the gods! The pagans say, we knew this was coming. 
Jupiter got really ticked when you traded him in for this Jesus guy. And as for the tidal waves that were caused, Poseidon wasn't any too happy either when you junked him and said there's only one God. So the pagans see this as judgment of the gods. Meanwhile, the Christians, many of them, are saying, oh, no, 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 no. This is because you pagans are still being pagans. And many of the Christians are just Christians in name only. And they're not really believers. And they're doing dirty things in secret. And so this is the judgment of the God, not the gods. Then it gets worse. Then it gets worse because if you look at the drawing I have up here, the orange is the Roman Empire. The blue, the Germanic people. The white, the Asians. Now you've got these Germanic people up here, Visigoths. Um, Goth, uh, 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 is not simply a word for people who wear black today with black nail polish. It's got origins. This is even before Gothic architecture, though the word does come from the, Vis- or from the Goths in general. So the Visigoths have been under a treaty with Rome that they'll stay north of the Danube River. But all of a sudden the Visigoths start coming because there are beyond them the Ostrogoths. Now here's what happens. As the Visigoths start coming in, they invade Italy. They invade Turkey. They invade Macedonia. Ultimately, they sack Rome itself in 410 AD. But they're invading. And the Christians are saying, what's going on? Why are the, the, the Visigoths invading? We're a Christian empire. Sunday is a national holiday. Because we're Christian and we're honoring the resurrection of Jesus. We have a Christian emperor. Okay, his mom's an Arian, but hey. Although by this point, Theodosius is the new ruler, emperor. Also goes to church at Ambrose's church, I might add. And so the, 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 the Visigoths are, are invading. And people are wondering why? What did we do to cause this? Well, now a good historian will tell you the reason the Visigoths are invading is because the Ostrogoths are invading the Visigoths and taking their territory. Why are the Ostrogoths doing that? Because there are these people east of them called Huns. They got a ruler that's coming up in a couple of decades named Attila. That'll be the apex of the Huns. After Attila, they kind of go downhill, literally and figuratively. Um, So the Huns are invading the Ostrogoths and moving them out. So the Ostrogoths are moving out the Visigoths. And the Visigoths are going into the Roman territories. And Rome is so fragmented and in such economic disarray that they don't have enough money and they don't have a good army and their leaders are falling apart. Theodosius can win a battle, but he dies and he leaves the, 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 the emperorship to his 
children that aren't old enough to even begin to be anything competent. And so the empire starts crumbling. Everybody wants to know why. And into this, Augustine writes a seminal work of his. It's an amazing work. Now, I'll tell you the why. You don't try to take and hold Europe. We know that from risk. It just doesn't work. Didn't work then either. But there's another thing that we need to talk about, and that's not risk. It's the seminal work of Augustine, City of God. Here's what Augustine said. There's a kingdom of God. There's a kingdom of Satan. And there's a kingdom of men. Or kingdoms of men. And we should never confuse those. The Roman Empire is not the kingdom of God. Even if it's a Christian empire. America is not to be confused with the kingdom of God. Even though we'd love to be a Christian nation. Even though we're obligated to try and live and seek our nation's heart for the Lord. But not because Christianity and the kingdom of God is an American thing. It's a God thing. And there may come a day where from a historical perspective, the historians might say America was overrun. But it may be a judgment of God. We saw that in our Old Testament survey over and over. The Assyrians run rampant over Israel. The Babylonians run rampant over Judah. And you can look at it and give a natural explanation, but it's also a judgment of God. As the prophets explain. So I'm not getting into all of that. But I am telling you that we need to remember the distinction. Because nothing, nothing, nothing. Will ever stop the kingdom of God. Now Augustine wrote a bunch of really cool stuff. I want to talk about more of it next week. But that gets us in the vein of it. Here's your fruit for home before we leave. Augustine's confession starts out. With praise to God. And I love that. And it's appropriate. The Lord's Prayer itself. Before the confession. Forgive us. Let go of our debts. Our obligations. What we owe. Our sins. Our transgressions. Before you get to that in the Lord's Prayer. You start out. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed. Be your name. That's an imperative in the Greek. Hagias Theto, hallowed be your name. And we will talk about that in August. Anyway, so, so it's appropriate as we confess to begin anything in our lives with praise to God. I will give praise to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. And I want to tell you, if any of us, and I suspect it's true for all of us, know someone dear to our hearts that does not know the Lord, then we pray for them. We pray for them. We pray for them. Don't ever let a day go by without praying for them. I know people who I have a daughter who will not let a week go by and miss an episode of Dance Moms. She's going to see it. I know it's a seedy, horrible show. Becky lets her watch it. I don't. 
If we're not going to miss an episode of our favorite show on TV, how dare we miss a day not praying for the lost? And so I just urge you, pray, pray. And when you're running out of ways to pray, pray that God will give you more ways to pray. But you don't stop praying. Second fruit for home. I love this passage from 1 Timothy 1-2. Paul writes to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul was a mentor to Timothy. Ambrose was a mentor to many, to an emperor, to several emperors. But he was a mentor to Augustine. Take seriously the testimony you have in your life. Find people that God's put in your life that you can help mentor. You can change the world. Well, God through you can. So I'm seeking to do that. I don't know how with time and I don't know how with everything else, but I really want to try and be a good mentor in the circle of influence that God's given me. And I hope you're trying to do the same thing. Last fruit for home. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. There's a kingdom of God, and it's not a kingdom of men, and it's not a kingdom of this world, but it is a kingdom that will not end. And it is reigned over by the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who will live eternally, who has called his own into this kingdom of which we are a part. And we pray thy kingdom come, Because it is with great joy as we see God's kingdom expanding. If you're continuing to memorize, next week you're up through John, actually 3.3. That slide is wrong. So keep working on 1 John. We're going to be using a lot of 1 John when we look at life root Greek in the fall. Can I bless you and then we'll go. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray blessings upon my friends, my family, those who are listening to this. I pray that you will bless them, Father, with the comfort in knowing that you are over all of history and all of time, that nothing escapes your gaze, that our prayers don't bounce off the ceiling or even the atmosphere, but they ascend before your very presence by the precious blood of Jesus who has secured our audience before you, bought and paid for it, who sits at your right hand, interceding on our behalf, Lord, the Holy Spirit, as we come to you and beg you to reach those of our loved ones, friends, family who are lost, to help us proclaim your kingdom to the world, Father, to bring a measure of your mercy and your love and your peace to a world that's torn up with strife and bitterness and selfishness and hatred and envy. So that this can be a better place, Lord, as we continue our march home to your eternal kingdom, of which we are proudly citizens through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.